Hey, this is Tom Thacker. I play in Gob and Sum 41. And you're listening to the Miserable Failure Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Miserable Failure Podcast. I am your host, Michael Krusty, and this episode is brought to you by CRW Canadian Rock Wrestling. Be sure to check them out. On today's episode, I get to speak to Thomas Thacker of Gob and Sum 41, good old Canadian boy from BC. I got to say, that's what I appreciate about you. Is that what you appreciate about me? Oh, hey, there's Curly Dan. Thanks for uh, chirping in there. I, I really, really appreciate it. <laughs> I'd like to hang out with you, you class. I'd like to get close to you, you're a guest. I don't want to be a friend. want to be a friend. I don't want to be a friend. Thank you, Tom, for being here. Tom is the uh, guitarist, one of the guitarists in Sum 41 and one of the main writers and singer and guitar player in Gob. I should say, I've seen you live a bunch and you do more than just guitars for Sum 41 now. Every time I see you, your rig gets bigger. Like you're playing keys and, and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, and I think it will, as Derek has more ideas or everyone has more ideas, it'll get bigger. I mean, when I first started playing with them, Derek had me doing keys as well because he knew that I could play keys. So it's like, I have these ideas, things. And Underclass Hero had a lot of keys on it too. So there were, I was doing the same kind of key breaks and stuff. And then we kind of dropped it for, no, actually we kept it going through Screaming Bloody Murder, but we were definitely more guitar-based at that point. Yeah, there's a lot of guitars. There were still keys on it. Like it just depended. I don't know if we played those songs all the time, but it seemed like we kind of dropped the keyboard. Like there was a while where we didn't even have a keyboard. And then Dave came back and it's, with Dave there, we can do so much more now, not only because he's awesome at guitar, but because it's like, we've got another guy. When you heard Dave was coming back, were you like, oh fuck, uh, am I going to be out of a job? Like, what, did that question come into your mind at all? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, I, I mentioned it to Derek and it's like, no, it's not happening like that. We're going to, we talked about it way before it happened. And David rehearsed with us way before he did a show with us. 
Yeah. But I think it was all like we had a couple shows booked. They just wanted to it to be a big thing when he joined the band. So we did it at the AP Award. I've heard a version of this story from my partner Val and from Brown Sound because they were on tour with Black Hat Attack. He was like texting back and forth with Derek and they're like, who are you talking to? Oh, no, 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 nothing. And then they had a day off. He's like, hey, I got to go somewhere. I got to fly somewhere, but I'll be back in two days. I'll meet you guys in Pittsburgh or whatever. And then that night he's on stage playing with you guys and they're like, what the fuck? (laughs) Really? Like I I didn't know about that. I mean, he probably mentioned something about it. But I didn't know that they didn't know. <laughs> yeah. I figured it, everyone. He kept it. He kept it a secret. Yeah, it was pretty funny. They were all excited. They're like, "Whoa, this is crazy!" Well, I guess he would have rehearsed with us by that point. But I'm sure coming back to it, maybe there was a little apprehension to talk about it before. Yeah, anything happened because you know he left at one point. And, I mean, he wanted to come back, but I guess it's just best to like get it going first before you start talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Before you even let other people in on the secret you mentioned that dave was a great guitar player and there's nothing against you but like from what i remember you from guitar you're the skinny dude in the middle of the stage playing gob songs just banging out power chords it wasn't until i saw you in some that i like oh you can you can shred where did that come from was that like just from your love for like heavy metal like iron maiden and stuff like that yeah when i first picked up guitar it was the first band i kind of loved was molly crew i guess and then i got into maiden and and whatever and kind of got into the shreddy stuff like as you do i think when you're like 14 15 but then when i got more into punk rock i was less interested in doing it it's still kind of there in the gob stuff a little bit it is yeah it's kind of disguised but i mean that wasn't what we were all about like gob was banging the shit out and we didn't want it to be perfect we Like we wanted it to have a shit ton of energy. It's weird to kind of try to recreate stuff like Too Late No Friends because your attitude is a little different. Like now that we're a little older and we kind of put, I guess, a little more um, stock in it it being good or being in tune or being, I I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Like what you would do, like how you value things when you come at it from a more mature angle. But then we were like, we didn't care as much. Like it's... I remember like redoing vocals and stuff to make them like a double to make it more pitchy and, and so it was beating more. Our values were different as a band. Like we just wanted to bang shit out and have it sound insane. As many fast songs as possible on the album? Right, yeah. So we weren't about being showy really. There was yeah. things that we would do. Like we did the metal stuff and we always kind of had a little like tongue-in-cheek metal thing happening. We didn't do it to the point that some did it like with uh, pain for pleasure but we definitely did that and that's why you know we hit it off with them so well they they loved that we did that metal shit we became friends really quickly once we met each other and played some shows do you recall like when you first met them because like at that point i'm assuming how far shallow takes you is out right because it's probably like 99 around there i think yeah we would have met them when we were touring how far i heard about them i feel like i saw gob headline I like the Elmo combo. It was, you know, Gabe and Craig were now in the band. And I feel like it was like Trouble Charger and some opened or something like that. Like, I I, th- I feel like it was some crazy lineup where it's like, what? Crazy. Just like all these like Canadian punk bands. I don't remember Trouble Charger being there, but maybe. Our schedule was super hectic in those days. We were just touring constantly. So I might have missed the Trouble Charger. But, but definitely some 41? Definitely some 41 at the Elmo combo. I think they got signed at that show. We brought them on a week or two run in Canada. And I mean, they were crazy, awesome shows. Like, and 
And they were great. So I first heard about them, about Sum 41 through Greg Norrie. And I didn't know Greg Norrie. He just walked up to me at the show and, and told me about Sum 41. And then they became, you know, we at that point, Bob was being managed by Network. Trouble Charging, they were managed by Network. Like they worked out a deal with Network. And then they brought Sum 41 along. And so then, you know, we started to see them more and did those shows. I always remember... Trouble Charger is like the CamCon guys too, like the first two albums with even Gravel and, and Red and all that. And I totally forget about that whole other era that they had. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I wasn't familiar with their early stuff. I've always been into indie rock and like punk and, and the indie punk and the jangly kind of stuff. But I never, Trouble Charger was a band that I just, they weren't on my radar. I mean, they were, I've heard of them. But I was like, I loved Sloan and Eric's Trip and bands like that, but I didn't. Eric Strip, Love Tara is like, I love that album. There's a song on there called Behind the Garage that I still play. Like I pick up an acoustic guitar and I'll just play that song because I love, I love how it sounds. Beautiful song. That record was one of the records that influenced, you know, as when we were writing stuff for God at first, that was one of the records that spun a lot. And I had gone, I worked at a record store in Vancouver in Surrey, BC, and uh, an MCA rep came in and she's like, I have this band coming um, and you should come to the show. You should check them out. They're really cool. It was Weezer. And they were playing with uh, with Eric's trip. And I'm like, oh, I've been meaning to check this band out because, like, not Weezer, but Eric's trip, because I knew they were on Sloan's label. I loved Sloan. And they were, like, aimed after um, a Sonic Youth song. And I loved Sonic Youth. And Pluto was opening. And they were, I don't think we were on Mint at that point, but I knew the Pluto guys from the previous band. And so I'm like, yeah, I'll check this out. And we went and Pluto played, you know, they're great. And then they played and they were amazing. But people were sitting on the floor. It was like before any videos were out or anything. Wow. They were incredible. No one really reacted to it. And then we waited and Eric's trip came on. I didn't, I didn't know their tunes. So I wasn't really, I wasn't sure what to expect. And just started this like this beautiful song. It's like beautiful, like indie rock kind of stuff. And then they kick in as the heaviest fucking band I've ever heard. <laughs> right? It sounded like Motorhead. <laughs> like it was so loud and it, their amps were massive. And and so I got Love Tara and I like just on repeat constantly. Like it definitely influenced God's writing and, and approach to music in those days. Wow. That's amazing to hear. For me, like Too Late No Friends was a huge influence on me and how I wrote music. But so was Love Tara. Like when I first heard that, I was like, this is amazing. I bought it on cassette and then, you know, I bought it on CD. And then later on I bought it on iTunes. Like I, that's one of those albums I kept buying and buying. And it's it. Yeah. In high school I was in like, it wasn't even a tribute band or anything. It was like, Hey, lunch period, let's go hang out in the music room. And we would just play songs from Love Tara. I would play drums and my girlfriend at the time would play guitar and sing. So she would do Julie's parts. It, it was, it was a fun time. It was such a great album. Yeah, The way they recorded it too. It's just like on a four track, like in their backyard or whatever. And you can hear like the dog barking. Yeah. We did that shit on the early cop records or like the early demos, I guess that would have did the, EP and but like we would incorporate noise and things and do things and there was this one song I don't, it might be on the EP where we were punching in Theo's vocal in, in a different screen just so that it would like we'd punch it in in time or off time and so we'd change. we would just do stupid shit like that because we like that we love that scrappy like four track recording thing we were always into the making records and like the art of it and doing crazy shit while you were recording
I definitely remember like getting too late. No friends because of soda was like on much music and it was huge. And then I remember like, I need more, I need more. And I, I ended up buying, I don't even know how I would have got the EP, what, which had basically five songs from too late. No friends. I don't even know how I would have got it. Maybe I just ordered it from like H and V or something. And then I remember as seen on TV and I forget who, well, who's the other band that it was like a split that you did with uh, another band, Joe, another Joe. Another Joe. Yeah. Okay. And that, and that EP has B flat on it, which the video for that is <laughs> hilarious, but like, and it was played on much music all the time, but you can't, I can't find that anywhere now. That's like, that's nowhere to be found that EP. After too late, no friends. Um, you know, we were really lucky. We made that video for soda. And when we went into the meeting, when we met up with mint records, who was our label at the time, we're like, we've got to do a video. And we were, dead set against doing videos we're like we don't that's bullshit we don't do that stuff you get into these like punk kind of things and you're sort of like i don't know just to kind of punk them we decided to uh we're like okay this is what we're going to do for video we're going to build a ramp and we're going <laughs> to jump bmx's into a lake and uh you're going to pay for it and they were like you know we thought we were putting one over on them and they were like this sounds incredible yeah <laughs> <laughs> And, and looking back, I'm like, it's the best video idea ever. Yeah. So, of course, it's anyone cheap is too. Like, it's the kind of thing that you should do when you sign to a major label and they're going to spend $200,000 on a video. And you're like, no, 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 we're going to spend 1400 Canadian dollars building a ramp and, like, shooting this shit on film. Grant's on the cover, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Mint at the time was, was Bill Grant and Randy Iwata. And Randy was the graphic designer. We did a lot of stuff with him over the years, even after we mm-hmm. weren't into anymore. Yeah. Anyway, after we did that record, I kind of felt like, I don't know, like I felt like we needed to progress from there. And where the progression wound up was obviously how far Shadow takes you. But you can hear it. You can hear a progression. But uh, like, that's where I kind of wanted to be because, you know, in Vancouver, there weren't, there weren't really a lot of bands like us. There was, you know, we had obviously this amazing punk rock in Vancouver. There was Way and SNFU was there, Big Will Abortions, and a lot of other bands, No Means No. We weren't really in that scene. We met, made friends with DBS, and they were kind of our, like, we were on the same level. We loved being outrageous and shit. And then, you know, once we started to have a little success, you know, once we made that soda video and much music started playing, like we didn't think anyone was going to play it. But like, we just made the video that we want to make and we don't fucking care about what anyone else thinks. And then they played it constantly. It was in like, it was in optional rotation, but it, it got like extra heavy rotation because it was a minute and a half long. Yeah, it was on and, all the time. And they loved it. So they put it in everywhere. It was huge for us. It made a huge difference. But then, you know, then we're kind of in the public eye with this band that like, we're a scrappy punk rock band, but all of a sudden we're kind of not a household name, but like people knew us in Canada. So it's time to, to take ourselves, like look at what we're doing and, and take it seriously. And our manager at the time was, you got to put a fucking record up now. Like, don't wait. He's like, I saw SNFU three years ago and I saw them two weeks ago and they, they're selling the same shirts. So so it's like that's <laughs> their, their shirt yeah. yeah but he's like no 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 you gotta make a record and he wasn't like a business guy he was our buddy so he's like you gotta keep putting content out there and we weren't ready so we just in between tours we just banged out half of As Seen on TV 
and then came back and banged out the other half. And I was never really comfortable with it. Yeah. You know, it came out and it's good. And of course, like it's us doing our thing, but I kind of felt like we needed more time to do the next move. And so we've never reissued it. We're thinking about it now because I actually went and listened to it the other day. We're ready to cringe. Super hot. I mean, it did. It had a couple points, but it's, it's fine. But where I wanted to be was how far Shallow takes you. And it, you know, it took a while to get there. Between Too Late and Shallow, you had a lot of lineup changes as far as drums and bass goes, right? And then it wasn't kind of till like Gabe and Craig came into the picture that you kind of got that sound a little bit, like it made it a little bit easier. Yeah. We switched bass players twice. We had Jamie and then we happy filled in for a little bit. And then eventually we found Craig. I'd met Craig, but he was so eager. Like he's like, the second time I saw him, he's like, I really want to play with you guys. I'll go buy, what kind of amp should I buy? What kind of bass? I'm like, oh, I don't want to be that guy that it doesn't work out. And he's spent $3,000 on gear. And like, we kept in touch and, and he was, he was awesome. You know, like he, he was pretty green as far as musicians went, but so were we, but he was more green, but he was so dedicated to playing it right playing well and he worked really hard and became a fucking awesome bass player in like a couple months like i would show him really difficult shit and he'd go home and he'd, he'd call me up he's like is this it i'm like no it's kind of like this fuck and then he'd call me up 10 minutes later i'm like yeah that's fine so yeah he definitely helped us shape the sound i guess me him and theo were on the same page and our drummer at the time he was great, but he wasn't as dedicated. He wasn't into um, improving his craft, I guess. And like, that's the thing. Like now we were, people knew us and they're like, what are they doing next? And I kind of felt like that scene on TV was good. The fans loved it. The songs were fun, but I was like, it, it can be better and we can be more powerful. And, you know, when we hit the road at that time, punk shows were, there eventually became a lot of pop punk bands. But if we hit the road in the States, we would be playing with hardcore bands, ska bands emo bands and so we watched these other bands we're like well we can be as heavy as that fucking hardcore band and we can have some of that that cool jangle that those emo bands have i mean the ska we had the goofy this sense of humor and stuff so we already had we didn't need to go ska but we kind of watched these other bands and then that's what kind of became the sound for how far it was basically it's very dark yeah. Another thing is we all went through breakups and there was this introspective kind of thing that came out on that record. You know, we were playing with so many bands that like varied from the goofiest band to the most serious band, the heaviest band to like whatever. And, and really just took whatever things that we liked about what we saw and incorporated it into our sound. But working on that record, it took a while. It took about six, nine months to kind of get things in gear because the, our drummer just he wasn't as dedicated he would go camping and get his car stuck and stuff and not show up and then and he was having a difficult time with stuff so we eventually decided that we were going to get Gabe to play the record we knew Gabe from his band BNU which were one of the bands that I loved in the scene they were like a punk hardcore kind of band from Surrey BC and I knew about them and I'd seen their shows Gabe eventually played with them we met him through he played with Strain and BNU and he was just a powerful drummer. That's what we felt we were lacking that. And that's what we wanted, we needed in those songs. Had we done them the scrappy way of doing Too Late Enough Friends, that record wouldn't be what it is. It wouldn't have been able to do it. Gabe was definitely more of a metronome. He wasn't as fancy. He didn't do really fancy roles or anything. But when he did something, it would stick out. It sounded great. And it made sense that it was there and everything was on time. We worked out that entire record before, basically before Gabe got there. I think it was maybe one or two songs that we 
worked out with him and banged it out. And, you know, that hard work paid off because it was so tight and it's, we were like staunch analog. Like we didn't want to fuck with anything, Like there's like maybe <laughs> where like literally like Blair, the engineer went and cut the tape to like, to put a different section on another song. And we were like freaking out. We're like, you going to fucking cut our tape at razor blade? You crazy? And it wasn't like finding anything. It was literally just, the intro from one song or like half a song to another song something like that so it's all us playing it and like doubling every guitar you hear is doubled it's like free it's so heavy and it's dark and it's like you guys are like the goofy kids on too late and then you hear shallow and you're like whoa this is the same band they grew up <laughs> you know that they grew up License from a cereal box. Did you, uh, at the end, you're, you play Seek and Destroy. And then I remember you have a cover of Mr. Sandman and you guys play Enter Sandman. Did you ever get any slack or anything for like recording Metallica songs where they were like, hey, you can't be doing that? Kind of. I mean, they never gave us any shit about it. By that point, we were with Network. Or were we? I don't even know if we were with Network at that point. But somebody yeah, Land had Speed, Land Speed Network. Yeah, but it didn't come out on Network at first. It came out on Fearless and Landspeed. I've read something about that, where you guys were on Fearless and then something happened and two weeks later, it came out on Network or something like that. Our manager was not happy with how um, Fearless was doing business. Uh, like just, I don't I, he was just having trouble with them. And so uh, he decided, he's like, we got to take this back. And then I, I, can't, I think we talked to a whole bunch of labels and then just, he worked at Network and he yeah, makes ball. sense. I don't know that it was the greatest fit sound wise at that time because we were literally the only punk band on Network. The only thing anywhere remotely near what we were doing on Network. But, you know, they had an infrastructure and something that could handle the record and handle. It's a pretty big Canadian label at that time. Yeah. I mean, they could, he wanted to make sure that we had some a label behind us that would push us, I guess, where he didn't feel that was going to happen with Fearless. So there wasn't like, really any hard feelings or anything. There was nothing like that. He's just like, we got to do something different. And so it came out on Network. But anyway, he reached short story long. Back to the point on the Metallica tip, somebody reached out to Metallica 
And they, you know, they were hoping that they would just be like, check it out. We've got this punk rock band and they've got a little snippet of your song. And they're like, all right, well, we'll take this much of the publishing. Oh, so fuck. They weren't like, they didn't tell us to stop it. They're like, yeah, I mean, that's our song. So I don't, I don't even know what the percentage is. I think I could probably look it up to like 10% of the song or something like that. And fair enough. I mean, we literally use their song in our song. Yeah. That's what you would do with a hip hop song, you know, someone would get credit for that sample. Whose idea was it to record Paint It Black? Because I feel like that was a big hit for you guys as well on the radio. That was for the soundtrack of Stir of Echoes. I don't know if it was a Canadian production or what, but they reached out to a couple of bands and I know that we were in the mix and Tea Party was in the mix, which makes, you know, I mean, that's, they're very, like at that point, they were a band that sounds like the Stones, like psychedelic stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure how it came about exactly, but the film company knew our band wanted us wanted to hear something, and so they sent it to us. So we did a version that sounds like the Stones. I feel like, no, do a, <laughs> do a version that sounds like you guys. So we went into we went in. I think it was like one night. We just banged out a song that was. We're like, okay, we'll do give it the gob too. I was sick. I had like saying that when I was really sick, and it fucking sucked. But it, it sounds cool because my voice is like totally shredded, and it's like the twisted shout kind of. It, they still play it on on like faction punk. I still hear it. Yeah, it turned out great. Like we, you know, I wasn't really sure what to expect, and I I kind of liked. It was fun to do the stone version with like guitar, like acoustic guitars and <laughs> yeah. guitar or whatever was in there. Like, <laughs> I can't even remember what we used, but we banged out this version. And I mean, I, honestly, I was like, it didn't seem that exciting to do another version, like do it and giving it the usual gob treatment. But when I heard the mix that night it was like this fucking rule yeah yeah it was awesome radio picked it up and everything i mean it's a hit song to start with so yeah like it's easy that way and it was a live staple for you too like i remember seeing you guys i think at like warp tour and and you guys did it there and i saw you i must have seen you guys live so many times i'm really geeking out right now i'm, I'm not sure if you can tell uh where else did i see you i think i saw you play at, what's that the palladium and you guys played it there like so it was it was in the set list oh yeah it's i mean we've played it I don't think we've, I don't think we've left it off a show since because I mean, that was the first song, like you were saying, radio, I think at that point, radio was unsure about God. Like we had catch songs. Like we had what to do. I think we kind of like got a little radio play and B flat was, that one might've been the first one that we were like, do you guys want to play this? And they're like, yeah, I like it, but nah. And it got, you know, it got the punk shows and stuff. But that was the point where they're like, all right, fucking, this is rock and roll. This is God doing rock and roll. So then radio took us serious after that, which, you know, was a whole other dimension for us as far as like that and, and like exposure.
more will my green sea go turn a deeper blue I could not foresee this thing happening to you Fast forward to uh, the world according to God, which I, I guess was your like most commercial successful album, I think, by the numbers. Yeah, in Canada. In Canada. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's gold in Canada, and it's um, in the states. It did okay. I think the foot and mouth actually sold more, but it, it does feel like uh, World According to was more successful in a way because it was. Mm-hmm. I don't know because it came first, and, and because. I hear you calling seemed to be like such a natural kind of hit, I guess. It was a massive hit. It was massive. Yeah. Was it on any soundtracks as well? It was on video games, I think. I think it was on NHL. Was it on NHL like 2000 or? Yeah, we had a bunch of songs on those games. And in those days, we would be playing Warped Tour in the States. And in places where people didn't know us, there would be bands and stuff coming from like other stages. And they're like, that's that fucking song from NHL 2003 or 2002. I remember, yeah, I remember one year it, it was the first song as soon as you turn it on was uh, was Red Flag by Billy Talent. I was obsessed with this game. So it was like I would hear this song all the time. <laughs> I just got I just got so sick of it. I mean, that's the great one to get you stoked for some fucking hockey, rock and hockey. Yeah, I imagine that people were like, oh, not again. <laughs> I don't know how many songs are in those games, but 30 songs. So what do you remember from writing that album, The World According to Gob? I feel like that happened pretty quickly after Shallow. Yeah, I mean, we were in a different place, I guess. We had we'd done a lot of touring and a lot of getting ourselves out there touring. We had done tours with more mainstream acts and stuff and, and got on more festivals. So we, we'd had more success and, and kind of had confidence, I guess. I don't know. We were all, I was in a relationship. I, or I fell in love with, right before that record. Let's see the titles here. I hear calling for the moment, no regrets. Yeah, that's the way. Been so long. Oh, yeah. That record was the first record that we fully worked on with Gabe and the, and the lineup from the start of the record to finish. And, you know, I mean, Network was fully behind it from the success that we had and stuff. So we got to choose a producer and stuff. And we, we chose, I mean, we had a bunch of names in the hat. I, I, 
don't remember exactly who like, wanted to work with Mark Trumpino and we had some names and stuff because we love Jimmy Eat World. I think yeah. that was a when we ended up doing a record with him. But um, there were a bunch of people. Like I, I kind of wanted to work with Ian Burton. I don't know. Like I think I'd spoken to him somewhere and I'd listened to a bunch of stuff. But another record that we really loved, that I really loved, was um, Dear You by Jawbreaker. It was sort of like we with everyone talking about it, we were sort of like, let's Rob Cavallo is not really a possibility. I don't think for whatever, I don't know if someone had spoken to him, but Neil King, the engineer, we think we can get him to do it. And I think he was maybe with networking. They signed him as a producer. And we worked with him and he's an incredible engineer. We kept the engineer that did uh, Blair Calababa, that did How Far Shallow Takes You. We loved working with him and we kept him on board just so that we would have another person that would be an engineer that wouldn't be because we also decided to do it all analog like and we were like we we found the only place in Vancouver with a 16 track two inch machine ian was working at a chemical sound in toronto and he was uh, i actually made an album with him that year in, t- in 2001 and he still had the two inch tape too and they had a pro tools right there but they like refused to use it like i would look at it I'd be like do you, you don't want to use pro tools and it'd be like collecting dust like no we're using this two inch tape that's where we were at we were at that point we were like fuck pro tools fuck auto-tune. We're not doing any of that shit. And I'm sure they touched a couple things here and there, but it's generally like straight to, uh, the drums are recorded to um, 16 track, two inch. Most of it, I think all the beds are, and then the vocals are probably an additional 24 track. It's super thick. Like it's, that's what we wanted. We wanted the thickest sound that we could get. I'm curious to know what albums you heard that Ian Blurton did that you were interested in working with him was like, like Cursed or Tort? I forget at the time. It was, I mean, it would have been his own. Blurtonia? Yeah. I think Change of Heart, maybe. Yeah. I, I forget what it was exactly, but he was one of the names. There was, there were a whole bunch of names. The guy that did the Sloan records, I forget what his name is. We actually met him somewhere. We loved Sloan, but one chord to another. And I think they had done those drums on a four-track or cassette four-track, like some Bob recording. So weird. We weren't about to go. Like, we wanted our drums to be fucking thunderous. And I know that you are my Bible Get out of 
So uh, I would say uh, foot and mouth sounds to me, it's more like um, shallows where it's a little bit darker, but there's more songs with like bigger choruses with more, a little bit more melody in it. And I think that also probably helped you get more radio and more people listening to you with that. Am I far off or am I, am I right? Or? Yeah, I think you, I think you're right. You know, with how far I think we probably could have put a little more work into the melodies and stuff, but we were, those were songs. Like when I wrote those songs, I'm like, this is how it is. And I don't want anyone to touch this. And like, I was pretty precious about every single note, good or bad. Everything was worked out before we hit the studio. Like it was, there was no, we didn't, we were not about to budge on anything. And then with, world according to, I think that I wanted the songs to be as strong. Like I, I wanted to do what we do, but I want the songs to stand up. I want them to be as strong as any fucking songwriter songs or whatever. And I was kind of, I didn't want to work with songwriters, but I wanted a producer that's going to be like, rewrite this chorus <laughs> or whatever, you know, like this isn't catchy enough. This, this can be better. Not catchy enough. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but I generally will write a hook and I fixate on that and I, I don't want to change it. And it's hard to change it because that's the thing that you love about it. And so I think with World According to, we just wanted the songs to be a little more melodious, I guess. I don't know, a little more melodic, a little stronger from a song perspective if someone was to sit down with any instrument and play it. So with our producer, we never really ever had that where they were like, rewrite this shit. And then going into, you know, we worked with Mark Trombino and I just, I was a huge fan of Clarity and I just, the production was amazing and it was sort of like more modern, I guess. And the songs were super catchy. Like that dude just writes killer songs and really interesting melodies and stuff, especially like clarity, unusual. And so we got Mark working on the record and that was the first piece. Like I, when I asked him things about that, what about this? I'm not a songwriter. You know? <laughs> because I just kind of wanted to be pushed a little more. But yeah. I mean, that was all us. We had a lot of songs and we, you know, we had a record. And then we went to LA and then, you know, we went in and Mark's like, yeah, we're basically good to go. But we, we had like a week or two of rehearsals before recording. And so he's like, you have any other songs? Like, yeah, about 30. <laughs> wow. We just fucking worked on so many songs down there. And we must have live demos of somewhere. But I think like the last ones to be added were like OL and Fed Up, maybe. Are you, you're telling me so O.L. and wasn't even going to be on the album? And it's like one of your most popular songs? <laughs> no, it was like, I, like we had songs. And O.L. was, when we were in Vancouver, I'd written a bunch of songs. And I just started, because I had all these melodic ideas, I started writing these songs with like women's name in them. <laughs> you're listening to a lot of Weezer? <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't. but I, But yeah, it was like. I just need something to write about. And if you like, I was like, Sarah came to me and I'm like singing the song about my roommate or whatever, you know, like just whatever. And O'Ellen was one that the, you know, I was like, I have these songs and everyone kind of liked O'Ellen. So it's, and you know, we had an idea of how it could be cool. And Mark liked that song too. I think it worked out for you. I mean, Mark liked all the songs, but that was one he definitely fixated on when we were working on songs in LA. At that point we were, we should have just taken a break. You know, we didn't really need to work on those songs or like thought of another record or something because it was just, you know, we were being a dead horse at that point. Like, we had a record ready to go. Let's skip forward a little bit. Dave leaves Sum 41. How do you get the call? What happens? How do you join Sum 41 on the road? Eric sent me an email. It was a while after David left. Um, I guess they were probably in the middle of making... Underclass? 
underclass. Derek just, uh, it's like, we're auditioning guitarists. And I just, I didn't even think about it, but like, would you, uh, would you be interested in playing with us? And I'm like, I don't want to break Gob up, but would you have any interest? And yeah, fuck yeah. Did he know that you could shred at that point? After they had toured with us and got signed, they brought us out on the road a couple of times in the mm-hmm. state. So we got to hang out quite a bit and bond over like being fucking idiots drinking and stuff. And also like playing and like sound check and stuff. They were pretty young. So they were always, you know, they were still excited about everything. So they were around, like they would be there when we were sound checking and shit. Like they were just, <laughs> and they were fans. We became like great friends, but also like hung out a lot and like jammed on guitar and stuff. And, and so, yeah, they would hear us play metal stuff. I guess we're, you were on Aquarius too, kind of when, when they were, right? And like well, The only thing we ever put out on Aquarius was Muertos Vivos. Okay. That was way later. In fact, that, that only happened because Gob was going to put that record out on um, Sanctuary. And Sanctuary closed, they closed their U.S. office, so it never happened. So we had to scramble to find labels. And we put it out on Aquarius and Cobra side. But yeah, so we, you know, we hung out a lot. Also, we, you know, we had, Gob had worked with um, Greg Nori. So they probably talked about, like, to him about working with Gob and stuff. And yeah, I've never been one to, like, you know, I, I love metal. Like, I don't sit around shredding all day. I, I'm going to play piano. <laughs> or play, I got a fucking accordion or a banjo or whatever. Like, I like a harmonica. Like, I'm going to play anything. Once I have a song idea that I'm working on, then I pick up the guitar. And then I'll think about, does this need a shreddy part? And then I'll get the cobwebs off. That's what every shredder says. Ah, I don't sit around and shred. <laughs> well, I, I think that there, I mean, obviously the metal bands that are like constantly shredding, those guys are into shredding and I'm into it. Like, I love it. Like when I hear stuff with me and Dave doing the solos together and stuff, it, it kind of gets me more stoked about anything with Sum 41 when I'm listening to it. But it's a tongue in cheek thing because I do love the songs for them. It's much more about the song to me than it is about the shred. But shredding is fucking fun. I'm not the best shredder. Like, there's so many better shredders, but I can get into it. I guess it was probably like 2000... Six, uh, you get the call for some, and the album Underclass comes out, and you do a bunch of touring. It wasn't until much later that you actually like are an official band member, right? Because I guess you had to pay your dues. Maybe did you play any guitar on Screaming Bloody Murder? Yeah, I mean, I played some. I was there for the entire repro, and Derek did most of the guitar. I did some. I did some of the stuff on Screaming. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, we recorded that in pre-pro so many times that they could have used whatever. But I know that he did basically all the guitars for that record. I mean, that's just the way Derek does right. Yeah, Derek is Derek, yeah. He pieces stuff out to me and Dave more now, I think, because maybe he's just like, I don't want to fucking play the guitar. Because it takes time. It's hard on your fingers, you know? <laughs> Mr. Seven.
Wavy hair like Pat the Wolfman's Mr. Salmon, someone to dread Someone who's creepy and after my head So please turn on your magic beams Mr. Salmon, bring us Please, 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 Mr. Salmon Bring us a Isn't it always a great feeling when you have a record label that you're signed to and you have management and no one's pushing things on you? It's like the band wants to do this. They want to record this. They want to play these shows. And everyone's just like, okay, we'll we'll get it done. We'll support you. It doesn't happen a lot these days. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, we come from that environment. Like, I, I don't think people, I think people always looked at Gob as this much bigger band than it was. Like they looked at an unstoppable fucking mainstream machine. That's me, everybody that's listening. That's me. We were just a band doing our thing. And we did line up with Network and they, they had an efficient business model and they made things happen. That's because they worked with huge artists. So they had, they were able to give that to us, but we weren't at the, at the Sarah McLaughlin level or the bare naked ladies or whatever they were working with, even the Sum 41 label that came later, we were never at that level, but we were perceived to be at that level because I guess we were the only punk band that had much music play and radio playing. I'm assuming, I'm going to assume that Sum 41, you know, has some tricks up their sleeves and, and you guys are probably pretty busy doing things from home, getting ready for next year. Am I on point or what? Yeah, I mean, Sum's always got chicks up its sleeve, but uh, we we had a couple shows. I mean, we had shows booked for this year, and then you know, that's all gone away. So I guess they're going to rebook it for next year, I think. I hope. I don't know. We'll see where things go. Like Slam Dunk was one of them, right? Yeah, Slam Dunk was the last thing that we were hanging on to, and then that just went away, too. I don't know if it's safe out there, so it's, let's, uh, I don't know. Let's wait and see what's happening. But we'll be back. We've got touring to do. We've got this record still to tour and other stuff. Of course, we'll be back. <laughs> I think Cohen mentioned you guys had like seven or eight songs that you had like an EP for, possibly. Yeah. I mean, I know there's stuff from the last record. I don't know if Derek has new stuff, but there's definitely some stuff from the last record, so maybe that's, yeah. That's cool. But yeah, I'm, I'm working on that. And we have some exciting gob stuff coming up too. Is there gob news that you can share? Not really yet, but there's stuff to, to stay tuned for. Some releases and stuff like that. So cool. It's, it's cool shit. The last time we talked in person, I also chatted about gob a whole lot. So next time I won't do that. We will not talk about gob the next time we, we meet. You know, it brings back memories. So that's good. You know, it's good. It's actually nice. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. It was good chat.
Everybody but yourself. Take a look around you. There ain't nobody home. I may be a loser, but at least I'm not alone. Give up the grudge. You better shut your mouth. Why you gotta judge everybody but yourself? Take a look around you. There ain't nobody home. I may be a loser, but at least I'm not alone. Give Up the Grudge by Gob. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for, you know, celebrating our 40th episode together and staying this long and listening. Means a lot. Please give this one a like. Give this one a share. Give us a follow on all of our social medias, on the Spotify, on the iTunes, and all that goodness. It will help a lot. We want to keep doing this. We have a lot of great ideas for the future. Thank you so much. Big shout out goes to Steve Risen. He is the technical producer for this episode and all previous episodes. Thank you, Steve. He works at a drive studios in Toronto, Ontario. And to everybody else, see you next time. There, I said it. I said it. I regret nothing. I regret nothing.